George III sat beside it, a robe dwarfing his withered frame and a tea tray untouched before his knees. When Cal came in, the king gripped the edges of his chair. "'Who's there?' he called out without turning. "'Robbers? Ghosts?' "'I don't believe ghosts would answer, Your Majesty,' said Cal, announcing himself. The ailing king broke into a rotting grin. "'Master Kel,' he said, "'you've kept me waiting.' "'No more than a month,' he said, stepping forward. King George squinted his blind eyes. "'It's been longer, I'm sure. "'I promise it hasn't. "'Maybe not for you,' said the king, "'but time isn't the same for the mad and the blind.' Kel smiled. The king was in good form today. It wasn't always so. He was never sure what state he'd find his majesty in. Perhaps it had seemed like more than a month because the last time Kel visited the king had been in one of his moods, and Kel had barely been able to calm his fraying nerves long enough to deliver his message. "'Maybe it's the year that has changed,' continued the king, "'and not the month. "'Ah, but the year is the same.' But what year is that? Kell's brow furrowed. 1819, he said. A cloud passed across King George's face, and then he simply shook his head and said, Time! As if that one word could be to blame for everything. Sit, sit, he added, gesturing at the room. There must be another chair here somewhere. There wasn't. The room was shockingly sparse, and Kell was certain the doors in the hall were locked and unlocked from without, not within. The king held out a gnarled hand. They'd taken away his rings to keep him from hurting himself, and his nails were cut to nothing. "'My letter,' he said, and for an instant Kell saw a glimmer of George as he once was, regal. Kell patted the pockets of his coat and realized he'd forgotten to take the notes out before changing. He shrugged out of the jacket and returned it for a moment to its red self, digging through its folds until he found the envelope. When he pressed it into the king's hand, the latter fondled it and caressed the wax seal. The red throne's emblem, a chalice with a rising sun, then brought the paper to his nose and inhaled. Roses, he said wistfully. He meant the magic. Cal never noticed the faint aromatic scent of red London clinging to his clothes, but whenever he travelled, someone invariably told him that he smelled like freshly cut flowers. Some said tulips, others stargazers, chrysanthemums, peonies. To the King of England it was always roses. Cal was glad to know it was a pleasant scent even if he couldn't smell it. He could smell grey London, smoke, and white London, blood, but to him red London simply smelled like home. "'Open it for me,' instructed the king, "'but don't mar the seal.' Kell did as he was told and withdrew the contents. For once he was grateful the king could no longer see, so he could not know how brief the letter was. Three short lines— a courtesy paid to an ailing figurehead, but nothing more. "'It's from my queen,' explained Kell. The king nodded. "'Go on,' 
he commanded, affecting a stately countenance that warred with his fragile form and his faltering voice. "'Go on!' Kell swallowed. "'Greetings to His Majesty King George Third, he read, "'from a neighbouring throne.' The Queen did not refer to it as the Red Throne or send greetings from Red London, even though the city was, in fact, quite crimson thanks to the rich, pervasive light of the river, because she did not think of it that way. To her and to everyone else who inhabited only one London, there was little need to differentiate among them. When the rulers of one conversed with those of another, they simply called them others or neighbours, or on occasion and particularly in regard to white London, less flattering terms. Only those few who could move among the Londons needed a way to keep them straight, and so Cal, inspired by the lost city known...